You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 214. I would like to remind everybody that we will be having another listener Q&A in episode 231, and currently I have 9 questions for that episode, but I can always use more. Send those questions over to historyofthegreatwaroutlook.com and I'll be sure to answer them. This is our second and final episode discussing the events of the Finnish Civil War. Near the end of January 1918, the battle lines for the Civil War had been drawn. On one side was the White Movement, whose stated intention was to create a Kingdom of Finland that would have a German monarch, probably German Prince Friedrich Karl of Hesse. On the other side was the Red Movement, who hoped to create a similarly independent Finland, but one led by a parliamentary democratic government. Both sides would be supported by foreign governments, with Russia supporting the Reds and Germany the Whites. The fighting that would occur in early 1918 would be short in duration, lasting just a few months, but very costly in terms of casualties. Over 30,000 people would die during and after the fighting, with 25,000 of those being executed or dying of disease in prisoner of war camps after the fighting was over. In this episode, we will discuss the fighting and the atrocities that would occur, and then talk just briefly about the aftermath of the Civil War, which may not be what you would expect. The Red Movement would be represented in the fighting by the Red Guards. The Red Guards had actually been created in the spring of 1917, with the initial purpose of acting as security forces for the security leaders and for the workers. The numbers in the Guards would grow over the course of the year, reaching 30,000 by the end of 1917. During the fighting, 140,000 Finns would serve in the Red Guards, which made them roughly equal in strength to the white forces arrayed against them at least numerically. The problem for the Red Guards would always be training and leadership. As with many volunteer groups, the Red Guards simply did not have very much military experience, either within their ranks or within their leadership. Almost all of the experienced soldiers in Finland, including the Jaegers that had been trained in Germany, would join the White Armies, 
and this left the Red Leaders to work with motivated but largely inexperienced volunteers. The leaders of the army were also quite inexperienced. The man who would become the leader of the Red Forces in Helsinki, and therefore de facto leader of the Red Guards as a whole, was Ali Altanen. Altanen had been in the Russian army, but had only risen to the rank of lieutenant before moving to Finland, which is just a really good example of the general lack of experience at all levels of command in the Red Guard, which would prove to be a serious problem during the fighting. Regardless of their experience in military operations, on the night of January 27th, the Red Guards made the first move that would escalate the violence into a true civil war. On that night, they moved to seize control of Helsinki, which had always been their base of operations. They would seize the telegraph and telephone exchanges, the railway stations, and the buildings of government. The leaders from the right-wing parties fled the capital or were forced into hiding. While this action shocked the leaders of the white movement, they were not completely unprepared. During the spring of 1917, even before the Red Guards had been founded, the future white leaders had created the Civil Guards. This was a militia formed to protect the bourgeois leaders of on the right from the labor movement, which was becoming more organized and more violent during 1917. The Civil Guards would also be used to crack down on striking workers, which is why the Red Guards had been created to answer that threat. By the end of 1917, the Civil Guard would number 40,000, slightly more than the 30,000 that were in the Red Guards. This was not the only advantage that the White Forces would have, because while the Red Leaders would struggle to find a military leader with both the experience and political notoriety to lead the Red Guards, the Whites would not have a similar problem. They would instead call upon the services of Carl Gustav Emil Mannerheim. Mannerheim had joined the Russian army in 1904, which was in time to serve in the Russo-Japanese War, and during that war he would rise to the rank of colonel. When the First World War started, he would command a brigade of the cavalry guards, and would eventually rise up the ranks to take command of a cavalry corps in the summer of 1917. After he returned to Finland, he would be approached by Finnish leaders who requested that he take command of the military forces that would eventually become the civil guards and then the white army. Mannerheim had some concerns about the growing strength of Germany in the country, but these concerns were not enough to keep him from accepting the job. He would request assurances that no outside intervention would be requested, assurances that were quickly broken, and I find it hard to believe that Mannerheim did not expect that to happen. The German influence on the White Army would be felt before the German troops even arrived, and it would begin when the Jaegers arrived back in the country. These troops had been volunteers that had traveled to Germany to serve in the German army during their fighting against Russia. As tensions grew in Finland during the later months of 1917, the Jaegers would prepare to move back north and back into Finland to assist the German-backed Civil Guard. The hope was that the well-trained and equipped Jaegers could prove to be an elite force for the Civil Guard, as well as a unit that could be used to train and inspire others. Not all of the Jaegers would make the trip back north, though. Given their purpose, it was important that only the most reliable members were brought back into Finland, and therefore several hundred of the Jaegers would remain in Germany, and they would not be allowed to travel back due to concerns about their socialist sympathies. The Jaegers were an advantage, and the Germans wanted to make sure that the Reds did not receive any of that advantage. Mannerheim was thrilled to learn that he was receiving these troops, calling them an inestimable asset. While he was accepting of these Finnish troops, he would be less thrilled about the arrival of German troops later in the fighting. These would be in the form of a German division, led by General von der Goltz. 
Mannerheim would even threaten to resign when he learned that they were coming, although he would be talked out of this action. The reasoning that Mannerheim would back down was because he was assured that he would be in control of the German troops, and there were also rumors that the Red Guard were receiving large numbers of Russian volunteers. Now, if these rumors were true, then the civil guards would need help, or they would be overwhelmed. But as we discussed last week, the overall assistance by the Russians was quite small, which meant that instead of balancing the scales, the arrival of German troops would decisively shift the balance of power in favor of the Whites. It should be noted that von der Goltz wanted to be in Finland about as much as Mannerheim wanted him to be there. Uh, his division had been pulled out of the preparations for Operation Michael, the massive German attack in the spring of 1918, and then sent to Finland. Goltz felt that this was quite a demotion, although it would not affect the German division's performance in Finland. In early February 1918, both sides would prepare for the fighting to begin. Both sides had roughly the same number of combat effective troops, somewhere around 70,000, and they had spent the previous week securing their own areas of control, with the Whites in the west and the Reds in the southeast. Now the Whites had disarmed all the Russian troops that were spread around the country, and the Reds had taken full control of Helsinki by the end of January. The Reds would also begin to create all of the political structures that they would need to actually lead the country, and that meant local administrations, revolutionary courts, and the police. Due to the moderating influence of the Social Democrats, the courts and the police were actually pretty much the same as the Finnish institutions that had been in place before the Civil War began, without any drastic changes in structure or procedures. After these institutions were sorted out, the Red leaders uh, looked to go on the offensive, and they planned a general attack along almost the entire front. The goal was to push north into white territory before they could fully organize. Now, the whites would meet this offensive with a very conservative defense. They were, in fact, preparing for their own offensive operations, and so they wanted to conserve their strength as much as possible for those future attacks. The Red Offensive, after it was launched, would quickly bog down and turn into positional warfare, which allowed the Whites to prepare for their own effort. After absorbing the Red Attack, the White Armies were ready to begin their own offensive. Mannerheim was concerned about the experience and abilities of his troops, and this caused him to try and create a plan that was as simple as possible. This plan would see 12,000 men, all that could be concentrated for the attack, split into four groups, all of which would be sent towards the city of Tampere. Once they reached the city, they would focus on surrounding it, instead of immediately launching into what was sure to be costly and lengthy attacks through the city. The White Offensive would begin on March 15th, and over the next five days, it would advance a disappointing 20 kilometers, far less than had been hoped. There were many problems that were holding back this white advance. The experience of the troops was one, but maybe more impactful was the lack of logistical capabilities for the army, which made it very difficult to sustain any large advance. Even with these challenges, the white advance slowly ground forward towards the city. By March 28th, not only was the army on the outskirts of the city, they had also been able to consolidate and prepare for an attack on the outer defenses of the city. The artillery preparations for this attack proved to be completely ineffective, because the information that the Whites were able to obtain about the positions of the Red Forces were completely incorrect, and this meant that the artillery barrage fell on some empty fields and forests instead of on the defenders. Even with this mistake, the White troops were still able to push the defenders out of the first defensive positions around Tampere. 
On April 1st, Mannerheim would send an ultimatum to the defenders of the city, giving them a chance to surrender. If they refused, he would begin an artillery bombardment of the city itself, which had up to this point remained largely untouched. The leaders of the defense put the response up to a vote among all of the Red Commanders, which supposedly resulted in a single vote majority in favor of continuing the defense. With his ultimatum rejected, the bombardment of the city began, and it would eventually grind the city into dust. After a three-day bombardment, the assaults began on April 3rd. The white attacks would move into the city from the east, with the defenders being slowly pushed back to the west. After three days, it was clear that the defense was hopeless, and 11,000 red soldiers would surrender. Only a few hundred troops would be able to break out of the encirclement and move south. This defeat was a catastrophic loss for the Finnish Red Army, and it would be a defeat that they would never truly recover from, not that they were given a chance. Because as the city was in the final stages of falling, German troops were already landing in the south and advancing on the capital. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. After the opening Red Offensive had been launched, the plans to land German troops in Finland were put into action. It had been decided that the German troops would be landed in Anko, on the southern coast to the west of the capital. The primary objective of this division of troops was to launch an attack directly towards Helsinki, with the secondary goal of moving to the north to cut off the supply lines of the Red Forces that were facing Mannerheim. The German troops would reach the Finnish coast on April 3rd, and the German fleet had two battleships, a cruiser, several smaller ships, and then ten troop transports. The German forces were landed and then easily took over the city, with the Red Forces having already evacuated. Unloading an entire division was not a quick process, and it would take three days before all of their supplies were ashore. 
It would be around this time that the German commander, von der Goltz, received word from the Russian warships which were in the port of Helsinki that they were planning to remain neutral in the coming fighting. All that the Russians requested was that they would be allowed to leave after the fighting was over. This was strictly a self-preservation act, uh, since they had no chance of resisting the much stronger German warships. Just five days later, the first German units would reach the outskirts of the capital, and what they found was a deeply divided city, with some citizens taking shots at them from windows, and others absolutely delighted to see them. As soon as the main body of German troops arrived, they were able to begin pushing through the city's defenses. By April 13th, it was all over, with the outcome never having seriously been in doubt. Around 7,000 red troops would surrender to the Germans, and the fall of the capital would be the end of the major fighting, with the rest of the red forces surrendering shortly thereafter. During the fighting, even though it was short, there were many reported instances of violence outside of the military confrontations. These actions would be referred to collectively as the terrors, both red and white. Obviously, these actions have similar names as the red and white terrors during the Russian Civil War, and they often took on very similar characteristics. During the bulk of the military actions, the atrocities from both sides took the form that was so common during civil wars, massacres against civilians due to rumors and suspicions about the local populace and their support for the enemy. These atrocities would result in thousands of deaths. After the fighting was over, the atrocities would decisively change. During the fighting, 80,000 red soldiers and civilian leaders had surrendered to the white army, and they were put into prisoner of war camps, with courts martial set up to try them for treason. Over 5,000 of them would be executed after being found guilty. This was justified by the white leaders because they claimed that the Red Guard members should not be considered soldiers of an enemy army, but instead armed rebels within the country. The whites considered them to be treasonous citizens, not an organized enemy military force. Even those that were not outright executed were subjected to lengthy periods in prisoner of war camps where they would not be provided with enough food or medical supplies, and around 12,000 of them would die in those camps, a number that does not include any of those that were executed. There would be more deaths within camps than in the rest of the Civil War. In the direct aftermath of the Civil War, the Finnish government was controlled by the right-wing leaders that had led the white movement, and their goal was to continue to expand Finnish territory, with the next step being an invasion of East Karelia. At the same time, they planned to create a Finnish monarchy. They would fail at both of these objectives. Instead, in 1919, a new Finnish constitution would be created that made the country a republic, not a monarchy. Some of the far-right leaders attempted to delay or prevent the adoption of this constitution, but they were unable to prevent its implementation. One of the major reasons for this failure was that the Western powers required a democratic government in exchange for official recognition of the country. And during late 1918, early 1919 time period where these events were happening, the opinions of Britain and France were pretty important. The first elections under the new constitution would be held on March in March 1919, and the party that would receive the largest number of votes and 80 members in the new parliament was the Social Democrats, the party that had just led and then lost the Civil War. They were not able to gain a majority, but they were the single largest party by a pretty good margin. It was impossible for the Social Democrats to form their own government or to join in a coalition to form one. They had just participated and lost in a civil war, and there were large groups that were strongly against them. 
However, in a pretty good political move, they did not really push to be included. Instead, they put their support behind a group of centrist parties that would be able to form a minority government. Through this support, they were able to gain some very specific concessions from the new leaders. The results of these concessions would be a large number of social reforms, things that the Social Democrats wanted, which would be implemented in the following years. After the formation of the new government, the Finnish leaders would start to be very active in regional foreign affairs. Before and during the Civil War, the Finnish right and center parties had been heavily pro-German. However, with the German defeat in the First World War, this alignment was no longer seen as profitable. Discussions would begin with the Western powers and then the League of Nations, but closer to home, the Finns would also become involved with discussions with the other countries that were breaking away from Russia. These are important to our story because those countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, will be the topic for our next episodes. These four countries, later joined by Poland, would meet several times in 1919 and 1920. The Finnish government was always hesitant to enter into any binding agreements, especially those that targeted Russia, due to the power that the Social Democrats held within Finland. And instead, the Finnish delegation would always emphasize the importance of the meetings as a communications channel. The conversations would bring the Finns closer to the other countries, who were all in a similar situation, just to their south. And eventually this would lead to the Finns becoming militarily involved. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode, as we begin to dig into the events in Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, as they try to break away from Russia and create their own new independent nations.